Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing adult DKA. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello and welcome back. Uh, it's me, Jamie, um, son, brother, doctor, educator, friend. Uh, and I'm here with uh, two of my friends... Uh, hello, Stephen. I think we're more acquaintances, Jamie. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> You're still a registrar in emergency medicine? I'm still a registrar in emergency medicine, and I was teaching medicine for two years as a teaching fellow in this very trust, but now I'm back in clinical. Smashing. And hello, Colin. Hello there. How are we? I'm one of the peace regs in the emergency department. You're a reg for this episode. Definitely a registrar for this okay. one. Excellent. And I see you brought your Star Wars lanyard. Always as in the, the paediatric uh, Wheezy Child podcast. So. The benefits of being a paediatrician. <laughs> uh, when we discovered that Phil Dykes has never seen Star Wars, so I have to ask you now, Stephen, have you ever seen Star Wars? Of course, yes, no, I have seen Star Wars. I've seen, yeah, my wife hadn't seen Star Wars, and that was, uh, and I'd not seen Die Hard, so that's the one thing we've corrected in the first two years of being married. Well done, very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, also discovered um, Anna Richmond and the, the gynae and obs teaching fellows who's come down here to record she's never seen an episode of star wars either and this is baffled baff- it is baffling mm. i don't know how you can do it anyway so dka part two we're now on to the adult side um where it's a bit simpler really in, in many ways and then we're gonna have a little bit of a chat as well about some of the the new areas and developments when we're talking about dka so colin you can heckle me as much as i heckled you in the last episode i'll look forward to it. <laughs> we can see if we can give colin palpitations with the amount of fluid that we're talk about. i'm sure you will very quickly okay so Palpita- palpitations is the next one <laughs> so our adult patient with dka mm-hmm. may present much the same as a young person with dka yeah, I expect so. Um, similarly, as, as Colin mentioned in the paediatric episode, um, they'll look very, very unwell. I think the the breathing, as we were talking earlier, uh, is often a very um, striking feature. I have seen where DK was found quite incidentally, though, and they look remarkably yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I think in kids, they're always poorly yeah. looking, but... I guess it's that degree of acidosis, isn't it? Because yeah. a pH of 7.28 mm. or a bicarb of less than 15, where it's only 14 isn't a million miles away from the physiological norm versus that pH which is often more around the 7 mark Mm. where you've got more established DKA. I've seen a few young adults who are actually very switched on to DKA as well who've uh, managed to get themselves to hospital before they've got too unwell so yes no it it has happened. Yeah I've seen I've I've felt like I was in DKA and you look at the numbers and go you are just like (laughs) 0.1 you are you are good Well done, I wish I was that in tune to yeah. my to my, uh, my blood uh, pH. Some of them have got uh, ketone sticks at home to test their urine. Yeah, very good. Uh, a number of the new fad diets as well, like no carbs, encourage uh, you to become ketotic. Yeah. And so the way to measure that you're being successful is to dip your urine at home. Take hourly does not. <laughs> Take hourly does not endorse such a diet. It's also a form of diet for epilepsy in children. Is it really? Mm. Well, to avoid ketone, oh, to make, make ketone, to make yourself ketotic. Yeah. How? Why? I know this isn't to do with DKA, but I don't know, but it works. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, so our patient may be hyperventilating well. Um, of course, the the brain can only use glucose. So if glucose isn't getting in, they may have a reduced GCS as well. Yeah. Um, excellent. This is the the classic. You know, uni student is found slumped. 
smells of alcohol in inverted commas and it's actually pear drops pear drops ketones on the breath absolutely um love a pear drop yeah i know it's acetoacetate there you are I've, I've, that's just off the top of my head that's one of the ketone bodies is it excellent <laughs> i've got it written down okay so i've re- seen it read it's like pear drops or nail varnish yeah or i think that's the acetate it smells like nail varnish from me yeah but i think it goes like colin said in the first podcast we talking about uh, blood sugar I think anyone who's acting a bit weird, whose breath smells a bit funny, don't put it down to alcohol. Check the, the glucose first and foremost. Anyone with an altered GCS should have a glucose measured. Brilliant. There you go. Uh, excellent. So what are we going to do for our patient? Um, so, uh, fortunately with DKA now, there's very nice guidelines from the Joint um, Diabetes... What was it? Joint Diabetes Society's Inpatient Care Group. The management of DKA in adults. They don't have quite such a, a funky acronym, but uh, no, they've got BSPED. BSPED, that was good. Um, they've got very, very clear guidelines. Um, so I think, I mean, the things I remember about DKA is that the, we actually, I think often people get excited about the glucose number and wanting to get the glucose number down. Uh, it's worth remembering that um, the, the guidelines don't mention glucose at all in, um, in quantifying severity. So your glucose could well be over 80, but if your bicarbonate and your pH and your ketone levels are, are in the normal range, then you're still, well, not normal range, but uh, a, a closer to physiological range, then you're still only a mild DKA. Um, and similarly, I think that's why people often get confused. Why are we carrying on insulin after our glucose is back to normal? And the reason is, is because we're trying to stop that ketotic process. We're trying to, to switch off your body from um, from trying to, to get energy f- through um, through ketosis. Mm. Um, and the way to stop that is, is by giving insulin. Um, it's not there just to get rid of the glucose in your bloodstream. It's also there to switch off mm. ketones from being made. Get out of that starving stress state that... Yeah, it may well have kept us alive in caveman times when food was, was scarce. You know, get out of that. And, and I think it's still pretty useful these days, isn't it? I mean, fight or a lot of this comes down to cortisol, and, and cortisol being the fight or flight hormone. Uh, one of the big effects of it, which you need to both fight and to fly, it's to make glucose. Uh, glucose, so uh, it switches on all these gluconeogenesis. Uh, pathways and one of those is um, breaking down triglycerides into free fatty acids uh, which undergo beta oxidation in the liver to become uh, ketone bodies um, so Colin is finding that brilliant he's loving that Perfect. <laughs> thank you uh, and of course uh, those of us who, who are still able to make insulin are able to balance that cortisol without it getting carried away whereas people who haven't who are relatively insulin deficient mm. uh, don't have any way of, of ba- balancing it so the cortisol goes up and yeah is, is able just to have its way without any opposition mm. I mean and that I mean that that is I think a very difficult bit in, in ED I find with I mean we've spoken in the first podcast your patient's got a bit of tummy pain your patient's got a raised white cell count a bit of a fever maybe as well is this the DKA is it not the DKA I mean I I like I said, a patient white cell count of 20. I, I gave them a shot of Tazacin. I wasn't entirely sure where anything was, but when I spoke to the med reg, they were like, well, I'd have expected that with DKA, but I think in ED, it's when you're the, the first, it's very difficult, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I mean, I think 20 is quite high. I think, yeah, often it comes down to that, the 14s, 15s, where you're like, is this the stress response that's mm. caused a, a neutrophilia or is this a genuine bacterial infection? Mm. Um, I think one nice thing about DKA is that often, well, I mean, it's not nice for the patient, but nice for us is that we're often treating them in quite intensive areas for quite a long time. So I think often you've got that, you, you, you can go back and you can reconsider. And so, yes, you can say, well, I know they've got DKA, I'll start to treat that and I'll 
always keep in mind what has caused this DKA. Is it because they've not been taking their insulin? Is it because they have an infection that's triggered that stress response um, and and uh, and cause that mm. you, you came up with your five eyes in the last podcast Jamie mm. I think that was a, a good way of remembering of thinking through some of the causes mm. of DKIA which mm. doesn't just happen it, it will have a cause mm. and then what is difficult uh, um, I think I feel very sorry for, for patients uh, who have diabetes who have uh, gastroparesis as a result of um, uh, diabetic neuropathies they, their stomachs don't contract as well they, they don't empty their stomach and so they get chronic vomiting is that something you see in kids, Colin? I don't think it's something we see very commonly in children in terms of gastroparesis. We certainly mm. see the children with DKA often come in with abdominal pain and vomiting. Mm. Um, but whether that's, again, it's a difficult one, is it? Is it mm. cause or effect? So have they got mm. A, mm. an associated illness that's caused them to have mm. vomiting and then they've gone into DKA? Mm. Or have they gone into DKA and now they're vomiting? So. Mm. The but challenge. I think that's particularly cruel that diabetes gives you something that makes you more likely to make your diabetes worse. I think that's that's particularly cruel. Mm. But anyway, um, so now it's time we need to sit Colin down and make sure he's, he's <laughs> feeling comfortable because we need to talk about treating an adult with DKA. Yeah. Spoiler alert: fluids are involved. Yeah. So it's. We're saying that one of the things that uh, having high glucose levels in your blood does is that your, your kidneys then try and take some of it out for you, um, and doing so, it's uh, glucose is very osmotically active, so it takes an awful lot of water with it. So people end up, and of course, if you often death, this will be two or three days down down the lines with the high sugars, and so that's two or three days of of peeing out more. Um, if they're feeling unwell, they're probably drinking less, and we were talking about fasting in the last episode as well. Um, so, so they will be very, very dehydrated. Um, I think that was always certainly part of old DKA guidelines. It was seen as, as fluid, 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 and fluid were the, the mainstay of management. I think since then we've probably started to realise that um, as you get dehydrated over four days, as your, your, the fluid shifts around from intracellular to extracellular to interstitial to intravascular spaces, um, that takes time. Um, and if we suddenly correct it all very quickly, there'll be very big fluid shifts and that can cause a lot of complications, which I imagine we'll come on to a bit later. Mm. Um, so we are more conservative with fluids. We don't look conservative if you compare us to the paediatric guidelines. <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> we probably will. So our rate of insulin is still 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour. Yeah, that's again another change if you may have... Uh, I suppose uh, people listening to this may well be coming through medical school and, and uh, coming up uh, against these kind of guidelines for the first time. But if you have, uh, sort of coming back to something like diabetes, and previously we have used sliding scales, um, but now because I was saying that we're not so interested in treating that glucose level, what we're actually trying to do is switch off the ketosis process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we know from evidence that we're, we're better to give a fixed rate of insulin, mm-hmm. and that's calculated by using 0.1 units um, per hour, kilogram. per kilogram, sorry, uh, yeah, 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, um, so in a, an 80 kilogram person, I don't know why all sort of <laughs> average adult males are 80 kilograms or 70 kilograms, 80 kilogram man, so that's going to be 8 units per hour of insulin. And here in our trust, it, it, uh, maybe in others, it goes up to um, a maximum of 10 units per kilogram per hour, and then it, it 
doesn't matter how much over 100 kilograms you are, you are mm. still not getting more than 10 units. Yeah. Um, which, and you mentioned the sliding scale, because the, the sliding scale is based on your daily insulin requirement, isn't it? So what do you take normally, mm. rather than based on your weight? And the maximum that we have here goes up to, I think, eight units per hour. So if you're somebody who's requiring 10 units per hour, on a fixed rate, and you mm -hmm. put on the wrong, you put on the wrong uh, treatment. You're not going to get enough insulin. <laughs> on a, on a practical level, yeah. Bedje, it's probably quite. Uh, I think uh, when I've got a DKA patient, I often like them to have two cannulas, um, because I think that makes it a lot easier to be giving mm. the fluid and the and the insulin uh, mm. at the same time. I'd agree with that. I think it um, makes it a lot easier, doesn't it, if you've got a syringe driver in one arm and the fluids in the other arm? I'd agree with that as well. Excellent. Uh, and certainly for our guys, sorry? No. <laughs> You're saying even in children. <laughs> even in children. Two. Oh, you mean doctor. Excellent. Sorry, it's got a Star Wars lanyard. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so initially we give um, a litre of saline in the first hour. Yeah, so our guidelines talk about assessing um, levels of shock, uh, similar to the paediatric guidelines. Um, and if we think that the, our patient is in any way shocked, so that's going to be measured by hypotension, but also worth thinking about other ways of, of, of showing that tissues aren't being perfused, such as lactate, um, then we should be giving a bolus um, 500 mils over 10 to 15 minutes um, if we think they're shocked. But otherwise, yes, it's a, a litre over uh, uh, one hour mm. of normal saline. Normal saline. Uh, and then it, the fluids follow very much the same sort of pattern, uh, a litre an hour, then I think a litre over two hours, I think is it? Yeah, so the, the, the again, this is the national guideline worth uh, checking out your own local guideline. I, our one at NUH follows the, the national guideline. Uh, so one litre over one hour, one litre over the next two hours, one litre over the following two hours, another litre over the next following four hours. And uh, oh, sorry, Colin's just collapsed. <laughs> no. You're right, Colin. <laughs> Six liters in eighteen hours versus your forty-one <clears throat> mils per hour for t for forty-eight hours. <laughs> but it's a it's a serious point that uh, <laughs> for for the paediatric patient, you can see why this is this issue, then, isn't it? Of yeah. At what, what point do you become an adult and go off your forty-one to up to you know? Well, these are just guidelines, and I think you know when I teach, when I was teaching my uh, medical students about fluids, um, I think one of the key things I used to teach them was to re go back and reassess. Um, and mm. so I'd hope that most patients with DKA would end up with a catheter at some stage. Mm. So, um, so you can sort of look at how you think they're doing based on their hydration status. So look at their mucous membranes, look at their heart rate, mm. um, and you can. Um, and look at their um, their fluid output, and you can you can make sort of assessments. And I think we were saying in the last podcast that seventeen and eighteen year olds, um, I'd either follow the pediatric guideline or seriously adjust our fluid. But I think that probably goes up into sort of early twenties. That perhaps you you probably could be more cautious on fluids than the guidelines mm. says. After all, they are only guidelines, and we have got other ways of assessing fluid resuscitation um, based on clinical findings. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, exactly, and and the other thing I think everyone likes a guideline. They don't. Everybody they? likes a guideline. Guidelines are comforting, but thing the pediatric the BSPEG guidelines went up to a maximum of forty kilograms. They're talking about. You can very often get a, a an elderly patient who weighs between forty fifty kilograms, and mm. I think you know geriatric DKA is going to be something we are going to be encountering because people up with diabetes are living longer, thankfully. 
Um, and we'll have to think. Throwing fluids at these people might not necessarily be the right thing. Yeah, I imagine cerebral edema will be less of an issue in them, but certainly pulmonary edema um, could equally cause problems. The Joint Diabetes Society's recommendations has given a few bits and bobs to sort of to tweak to to uh, as you're going through with your patient. Um, first up, take a venous and not an arterial blood gas. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think. Um, what does a venous? What does an arterial blood gas that a, a venous blood gas give? What does an arterial blood gas give you that a venous blood gas doesn't? And I think the answer is the the oxygen levels. Um, and I think that's probably not the most important thing in a person mm. with with DKA. Um, we were saying in the last podcast that they are breathing fast, but that's nothing to do with the fact that they're they need they're hypoxic or have any problems with their lungs. It's to mm. do with the fact that they want to blow off their CO two to try and normalize their pH as much as possible. Mm. So I think be cool, be kind to your patient and don't stab them in the wrist and instead get a venous. No, well they do need an awful lot of, but uh, you know, we, uh, these people are sick so we are monitoring them very closely. Um, so they do end up with quite a lot of blood tests and we should be sort of repeating these VBGs. I think the guideline says uh, every hour, is it, or, or mm. every two hours. Um, often I think in practice it does tend to be probably less often than that, but certainly every hour would be a good, a good sort of aim to... To go, a good thing to aim for. So certainly, around in paediatrics, Colin, where do you manage um, children and young people with DK? Do they stay around in the, the paediatric or do they go around to the resuscitation area? I think that depends on them clinically. So I certainly think um, there are some patients who are GCS 15 mm. um, who are in DK who can be well managed uh, in the paediatric department. I think if you've got any concerns about their GCS when they arrive, that auto means, automatically means they should be in resus. Um, if you've got any concerns about shock of when they arrive, they should automatically be in resus. Um, and I guess our other aim with these children is to try and get them into a location that's used to managing this as quickly as possible. So mm. either a specific paediatric ward, which we have designated in this hospital, or a HDU or ITU mm. environment. Mm. But certainly it's about having people who are familiar with managing DKA, looking after them as quickly as possible, mm. and I think that's a big key. So I think, and in adults, they <coughs> patients to come to resus, and it's not really where how poorly they are. I think it's that. So here they will get regularly monitored, like you were saying, to to get their their BM and ketones checked regularly. I think because DKA has become so protocolised these days, we mm. do sometimes forget how sick they are. Mm. So we think, oh, DKA, that's actually easy. But mm. it might be easy in terms of that we know mm. the treatment, um, mm. but it's not e easy in terms of these people are very unwell. Mm. Often they will have an altered GCS, as we said mm. um, earlier, because of, um, you know, ultimately I've never seen a, a pH as low as I have done in a, in a patient with DKA. Mm. Um, so, you know, sometimes they're lower than even than some of the post-arrests gases yeah. that I've seen so these people are unwell and they do need sort of HDU sort of level care which we can provide in recess in the A&E setting or obviously actual HDU in the in the medical setting or possibly level one depending on how unwell you think they are. So yeah DK is that difficult thing isn't it because on, on the one <coughs> hand people can get well very quickly so you, your, your pH of 6.9 can go up to the right side of 7.1 within a few hours and you mm. think wow this is good I'm making a difference but on the other hand you think well I've got this protocol ah, I've, I've diagnosed DKA fine I've sorted that that patient's sorted and mm. you don't go back and check you don't try and find the cause you don't notice the reducing GCS if you know that's the difficult that 
protocols are very helpful, but on the other hand, they yeah. can get, you know. Um, there are serious complications associated with DKA. So we've mentioned cerebral edema just now and also in the last podcast. There's also pulmonary edema, um, hypo and hyperkalemia. So they're a very serious thing require, as things require cardiac monitoring, potentially fatal. And of course, hypoglycemia, uh, if we do end up um, getting their sugars down um, the wrong side of four. Um, then uh, that can also be very, you know, very treatable, but also potentially very serious. So, and they're all things you want to catch early and and uh, and treat early if you find them. So that's why you need that high level of nursing care. So I have the Joint Diabetes Guide um, guidance from 2010, which out of date now. You're, you've got the 2013 there, haven't you, Steve? Don't feel bad, Jamie. I don't feel too bad. But what I do find interesting is that they've, in the 2010, they mentioned the recent discovery of blood ketone checks, which they're very excited about, mm. using that capillary ketones rather than urinary ketones, because I suppose a patient may be dehydrated and not able to give us a sample to dip. Yeah. Oh, on your guideline, they'll be fine. We've just had six, six litres of fluid in 18 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Colin's yeah. still recovering. <laughs> We're wafting him. <laughs> yeah, of course, there's three parts to DKA. There's the diabetes, the sugars being above 11 millimoles per litre, but obviously a lot higher. There's the K, the ketosis, ketones, uh, traditionally measured in the urine, more than two plus on a urine dipstick. Mm. Nowadays, we have the luxury, I think, in most trusts now, I imagine, um, perhaps not on a lot of the wards, um, but certainly in, in most emergency departments, I imagine we'll be able to measure capillary ketones, which give us a nice, slightly more accurate number, and we want to see more than three millimoles per litre. Mm. And then, of course, the A, the acidosis, we, want to, uh, we need a pH of less than 7.3 to diagnose DKA. Mm -hmm. uh, mentions crystalloid over colloid. I think we're all pretty much a colloid is pretty much dead now, I think, isn't it? I think, yeah. yeah, I feel sorry for those people that must have put all that research into voluven and volulite and all those kind of things. Mm. It's like, yes, we should put potato starch into patients. It's like, oh, it turns out that's not a good idea. You guys use normal saline, do you? We do. There, there, there is a fair bit of discussion in their guideline about what sort of the best fluids, and I think they kind of... They, they go for saline just on the basis of that it's been used for years and yeah. has probably the most evidence. I don't think there's probably much to choose in terms of crystalloids, um, but certainly that's what the, the diabetes guidelines have come down on. Mm. What do you guys say? You use the mix, do you, in, in pediatrics? No, 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 we use 0.9% saline currently, but it's just all this talk about plasma light, which we're starting to use in lots of other uh, mm. patients as a resuscitation fluid. Certainly mm. um, they use on the pediatric intensive care unit here just seems odd to give an acidotic patient sodium chloride which has a pH of 5.5 yeah no definitely um, mm. and make um, them hyperchloremic and that's what that's what add, we add some more acidosis we yeah. find that their first gas or two is worse or similar even after their ketones have been in have started to reduce because the mm. chloride load starts to increase that might be a bigger problem in a in a smaller patient mm. um, but certainly our guideline still uses normal saline at the moment Mm. Yeah, so I've got the, the guideline in front of me here which mentions the debate about um, saline versus Hartman's um, and they've, they've mentioned two randomised trials published since the 2010 version of this guideline mm. uh, which compare the, the two and neither has shown the superiority of one fluid over the other in terms of clinical outcomes. We mm. therefore recommend that 0.9% sodium chloride with premixed potassium chloride should be the default solution for fluid resuscitation because it is compliant with MPSA recommendations. There you go. So maybe we'll see plasmalite uh, versus 0.9% saline as a trial coming soon. In the next mm. one. Coming soon. Uh, and yes, with uh, with potassium chloride being added in after the second bag if the patient requires it. Excellent. 
Um, other guidelines mentioned here about continue, if your patient is on a subcutaneous long-acting insulin, either Levomir or Lantus, trademarked, um, to continue those while your patient's on DKA. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's often one of the things we forget. Um, I certainly know it's uh, often if I ever speak to a diabetes, a diabetic specialist. Diabetologist. Diabetologist. It's one of the first things they ask me is, uh, is about giving the, uh, the their own regular long-term long-acting insulin because that's what kind of is uh mimicking in a in a normal person the sort of the basal rate of insulin that we all have uh is their long-acting insulin and again it's just something else to help turn off that ketotic process mm, excellent so that thing in ed thing i'm so proud i've saved this person's life and the specialist comes out oh, you haven't done this one thing oh i feel mm. like a failure <laughs> This is this is the this is the uh, the burden of the emergency physician. <laughs> oh, we're generalists, people. Mm. Specialist I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud. Excellent. That's um, why I like Amy. Hmm. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, what else have you got there, guidelines-wise, Stephen? No, I think I think those are the main the main things. So mm. we we talked about fixed rate insulin. Uh, how that's a relatively new thing talked about how we're being more conservative with fluids um, we're remembering that I think again it's it's worth thinking about what's going you know following the guideline is great and um, remember the underlying process and why we're doing these things so we're giving fixed rate insulin because we're turning off the ketones from being produced um, with therefore when you get to a sugar level of below 14 um, they the guidelines recommend you start 10% dextrose to keep that sugar level up that may seem counterproductive why on earth am I giving insulin and sugar at the same time the reason is because you're turning off the keto um, the the ketosis the beta oxidation process mm. that's that's causing all those problems they're very dehydrated it's happened over a number of days so let's try and replace it slowly I think I remember when I first used to start treating DKA I often used to get quite frustrated by how they did get better quite slowly but actually I think that's probably what you want you do want them better over hours rather than over over minutes maybe mm. that's my being an A&E doctor sort of coming in it's like if, if it doesn't happen in the first four hours I'm not interested <laughs> um, so that's why we're giving fluids we're giving their long-acting insulin because we're also trying to mimic that basal rate of insulin and turn off that ketone uh, ket ketosis <laughs> I'm struggling with all my different sort of variations of the word ketone <laughs> ketosis um, and uh, yeah, we're looking for an underlying cause, um, always bearing that in mind. Why has this person gone into DKA? Um, and I guess the, the ones that are uh, most relevant to treat for an a &E physician are probably a lot of the infections. So mm. uh, worth a chest x-ray to look for a pneumonia. Mm. Um, worth thinking, worth, you know, is worth, try, worth thinking about what symptoms DKA can present with, such as abdominal pain, such as a low GCS, but, but also thinking about could this be one of the complications of diabetes, DKA, such as peripheral edema, mm. cerebral edema, mm. um, hypoglycemia, problems with the potassium, mm. or could it be the underlying cause of the DKA, such as uh, and a chest septus, are they breathing mm. fast because they've got a chest septus, mm. as well as their uh, metabolic acidosis. Have you ever had to give a young person bicarbonate in DKA? Um, I've never had to give a young person bicarbonate in pure DKA. I have used bicarbonate in a few teen teenagers who mm. were obese mm. and had this kind of mixed type 1, type 2 picture. Um, just within that, these children were all, well, both of them were intubated on intensive care with mm. GCSs of, of three at the time and bicarbs, which were 
well into single digits mm. uh, and had been for a long time. Mm. My theory on bicarbonate is always that it gives you, it makes your numbers look better as mm. a general rule, um, but doesn't actually change any of your processes. Mm. So it certainly usually disappears quite quickly. So you might suddenly get them from a pH of 7 to 7.2, um, and then a few hours later you'll be back where you started as the body then gets rid of it all. So mm. I think it has its places and its moments from mm. a paediatric point of view. I think mm. it's a paediatric intensive care units drug. I mm. don't think it's for use in the emergency department as a general rule. And, and that's pretty much the same in, in adults. I think one, it, if the bicarb, like you said, is in the single figures, mm. you, you need to be talking to ITU. It, it's not something to, to routinely uh, be giving and, and the, the guidelines clearly state that as well. And do you, is that a bicarbonate infusion or a correction? So it says, um, adequate fluid insulin therapy should resolve acidosis. Use of bicarb is not indicated. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, the use of bicarb may delay the fall in blood lactate. Yeah. And there is some evidence to suggest that bicarbonate treatment may be implicated in the development of cerebral edema in children and young adults. That's yeah. from Glazer in 2001. Yeah, so I think what we're saying there is that generally the answer to it, if anyone asks you about bicarb is no. <laughs> uh, of paediatric intensivists can perhaps change those rules but I think as we've said many times these patients got sick slowly they'll get better slowly and patience is often better it's like all these things isn't it I think Colin's made a great point about we're treating a number um, you know we all know that if you've got a low blood pressure you want to know what the patient looks like mm. as well so mm. you want to know are they actually you know mm. just because they've got a low blood pressure what we're really asking is are they perfusing their organs mm. again we're, we're, you know it's the same thing with the bicarbonate you know correcting the bicarbonate might make us feel better but actually the question is more about the perfusion mm. of kidneys the you mm. know use of using up a, a base mm. um, with something acidic like ketones I was, again, from my university, uh, taught the four W's whenever you're worried about blood pressure. So, um, are they weeing? So are they perfusing their kidneys? Are they with it? So what's their GCS? Uh, are they warm? So are they, are they not uh, peripherally shut down? Um, easy for you to say. Easy for me to say. And are they without lactate? So are they perfusing their organs? The four, the four, the four W's of, of low blood pressure. So. Very good. Anyway. Right. I think that one of the things uh, we should say is, that is what, our, what we're aiming um, for with our treatment. So this is, you know, again, sorry, this is my A&E bias coming through that I'm sort of interested in starting the treatment. I'm less interested in, in, in carrying it on, but that's a, a very bad way to be. Um, so the guideline mentions about trying to get their, um, what sort of rate we should be trying to get mm. their insulin down in. Um, so what we're, we're, it talks about trying to achieve a rate of fall of ketones of at least 0.5 millimoles per litre per hour mm. and uh, trying to get a bicarb rise of 3 millimoles per litre per hour. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, there's a guidelines about uh, potassium. Um, if uh, potassium levels over 5.5, we shouldn't be replacing it. Seems obvious. Uh, if it's in the normal range, so between 3.5 and 5.5, we should be giving 40 millimoles in every litre that we replace. And if it's below 3.5, uh, we should be speaking to an intensivist about giving them potassium slightly faster, mm. um, which would mean probably central access and quite a lot of monitoring. Mm. So I suppose leaving the emergency department, our young patients will be going to maybe a higher level of care or a specialist wards, yep. whereas here adults, they may well go to a general acute take ward, mm. but we need to be keeping an eye on, on the responses. You know, if they're on, if getting... 40 millimoles of potassium in an hour, you, sh you need to be on a monitor for that. 
if their acidosis isn't resolving quickly enough, like you said, you know, worried about the bicarb, you're going to be needing intensive, uh, uh, you know, level two, level three bed. Yeah, so the um, the guidelines talk about severity, and they're based on um, they're, they're based on the bicarbonate levels and the and the uh, pH. So um, yeah, I doubt uh, I doubt the general medical ward would thank you if you've still got a pH of sort of less than seven point one on sitting on a medical ward. So if in doubt, speak to the medreg. If in doubt, speak to the medreg. <laughs> right then, very good. Are we all there. So I suppose I'd like to conclude with a shout out to Sir Frederick Banting the Canadian scientist whose 125th birthday was last month. Um, he isn't alive anymore, unfortunately. But um, If he was, I'm sure he'd listen to Take Orally, the emergency medicine too. podcast. He died in 1941, but he's the gentleman who first isolated insulin safely there we go. Um, from um, cows and dogs, and therefore it was the first time we, ate, we were able to have insulin to give to our patients. Mm. And that was in the early 20s, so DKA was a death sentence until... Diabetes was a death sentence. Diabetes was a death sentence until the early 20s, yeah. until this gentleman came along. And of course, since then, genetic engineering has come along. We, we no longer need to kill horses and cows and dogs to get their insulin. We have bacteria to do it for us, but... Um, <laughs> to, yeah. to make the insulin for us, not to kill <laughs> the cows. <laughs> yeah, to kill the insulin, <laughs> to make the insulin, not to kill the... Yeah, shout out to Sir Frederick Banting, whose birthday uh, it was, and, and uh, Google celebrated with one of their special headings that had insulin on it and had his face. Oh, happy so. birthday to him. Thank you, Sir I Frederick. I lots of cards. <laughs> I hope that we have as much impact on the world of medicine. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, listeners. And thank you, Colin. Thank you. you. Thank you for both for coming. You both have teaching to go to. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. That was the Take Orally Adult DKA podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we will put up links to any guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you would like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.